0: In this episode, I'm joined by Professor John Myrdin Reynolds, also known as Lama Vajranatha, writer, teacher, translator, and scholar-practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. Professor Reynolds recounts his adventurous life of practice and scholarship, including extensive travels throughout Asia, and discipleship under revered gurus such as Dujom Rinpoche, Namkai Norbu, and Lopon Tenzin Namdak. Professor Reynolds details his journey through American academia, explains why he turned down an invitation from the CIA to create Tibetan propaganda, and shares anecdotes of Tibetologists such as Hugh Richardson and Edward Conze, including the latter's escape from the Nazis and defection from communist activism. Professor Reynolds also recalls his first out-of-body experience, brought on by a car crash shares the mystical visions of water spirits, Dakinis, and other beings that have featured in his life since, and tells the story of the tragic consequences of the Gulukpa destruction of the psychic barrier erected by Pabma Sambhava to protect Tibet from China. So without further ado, Professor John Myrdin Reynolds. Professor John Reynolds, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you here today. You've had a very interesting life indeed, and I'm looking forward to discussing that with you. I'm wondering if we could start at the beginning, your early life. Can you say something a little bit about the context of your upbringing?
1: I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey near New York City. And uh, because of the bad smell from the oil refineries, it's often known as the armpit of North America. But it wasn't so bad when I was a kid. And uh, my mother was of uh, 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 Irish Catholic background, a family coming from uh, 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 County Galway. And my father was an old time uh, Protestant. But my mother broke with the church as a teenager. And so, uh, and my father had the idea that you only go to church three times in your life. That is when you get baptized, when you get married, and when they bury you. So I was not really brought up very much as a Christian, although surrounding me in America, it was very much a Protestant Christianity. And even the Catholic churches uh, seemed to be very Protestant uh, in New Jersey at this time, although I enjoyed visiting occasionally with my mother to the Catholic Church in West Orange because it was a beautiful stone Gothic structure. And then the priest gave a wonderful performance, He did all this uh, incense and holy water, and he wore this Gorgeous costume, and he spoke in this mysterious uh, language called Latin. And uh, I like that aesthetically. Whereas in the Protestant churches, we, we visit, well, the music could be very good, I admit that, but the commercials were much too long. So, uh, so. Uh, I did not really grow up as a Christian, and then uh, with my father's background, he had a very large family with a lot of artists uh, in it, and particularly my uh, great-aunt Lottie, and uh, she had a beautiful garden in uh, Long Island with this. uh, She had been married to a sculptor, uh, Joe Gosling, who was he designed the uh, streetlights in Chinatown, San Francisco, and had also been one of the designers of the San Francisco World Fair. So the whole house was filled with sculptures and this, and you had this uh, kind of shrine of the God Pan. So I really resonated uh, with that. And uh, Well, Santa Claus never uh, appealed to me. I was two years old when I announced that no big fat man like this is ever coming down our chimney. And later, uh, I wasn't uh, attracted to the mythology and symbolism of the Christian church. But uh, in the third grade, my father started reading to me this uh, Edith Hamilton's book of Greek mythology. And that really got me interested in religion. I could relate to that, whereas I couldn't to this middle-class American Christianity which was uh, surrounding me. But what got me interested in India in particular was when I was 12 years old, uh, I read one book called The Religions and Philosophies of India. And actually I was very fortunate because my uh, father had been a a writer in the 1930s uh, writing short stories that appeared in pulp magazines. He was a drinking buddy of L. Ron Hubbard. They were both in five novels and this. So in the basement, he had this huge collection of pulp magazines, which I, I went through. I discovered weird tales and all of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories and this kind of thing in Conan, the Barbarian, and this. This <clears throat> now, the comics in those days weren't so. Good. Uh, Not like later Marvel comics. But also I looked at them. Bad Batman and uh, Superman, etc. And of course, I never read the Bible, but I knew a lot of the stories because I did read the comic books so I knew about that. But anyway, what got me interested in India was reading this book. I was very attracted to the model of uh, Indian spirituality, where you had a single ultimate uh, reality, whatever you might call that, Brahman or Shunyata or something. But there could be many different faces to this uh, gem. So it didn't matter what gods or or goddesses you you worshipped and so on. And of course, according to my mother, what's really important is whether you're a good person, you have uh, compassion for other living beings and uh, uh, so on. Now, in that book, there was one chapter about Buddhism, but it was only talking about Theravada Buddhism uh, so it was all about monks and monasteries. Well, th- this age, when I was sixth grade going to seventh grade, I started kind of getting interested in girls and had no interest in becoming a monk and going to an all boys school living in a monastery, this kind of thing. So anyway. Uh, Uh, In those days, I think it was about 1947, Lowell Thomas uh, published a series of uh, articles on his visit to Tibet, to Lawson, and so on. And all right, I found that uh, interesting. But what really turned me on to uh, the Tibetan tradition of uh, Buddhism was uh, my first year at the university when I read the Translation edited by Evans Wentz, uh, and he called it the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And this really caught my attention because here is a style of Buddhism that you can practice where you don't have to be a monk in a monastery. You, you can be a tantrika, a ngappa, and, and so on, and have a wife, family, etc. And it also talked about this very colorful figure, Guru Padmasambhava, uh, back then in the 8th century, who visited uh, uh, Tibet and brought the Tantric t- tradition of Buddhism from uh, India to Tibet, although he himself was of Central Asian or origin, like the Hungarians. and. Uh, it talked about the Nyingma Pa school, which is the oldest uh, uh, school of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and also about this mysterious Dzogchen philosophy, except Evans Wentz, uh, who didn't read any Tibetan and was actually uh, never a Buddhist. He was a theosophist and a student of uh Catherine Tinley, who at, t- at one time had been head of the uh, American section of the Theosophical Society in the U.S. and built her special temple at Point Loma uh, in Sa- San Diego. and uh, But uh, reading the, this book, really got me interested uh, in that. And I took some courses at the Columbia University and Asian studies and so on. And uh, Columbia gave me an excellent education because they assumed there that in America, you always didn't get such a good education. And so they gave you the first two years as whole crash course in the history of European art, culture, philosophy, literature, and so on. That was excellent. And I greatly uh, appreciate that. And as well as having our big library at home, where I started very early uh, reading books and uh, becoming partly self-educated at that time. So I feel I really had some uh, good karma in, in this uh, uh, lifetime. And of course, uh, things came up like uh, the Vietnam War and so on. It ended me uh, going to uh, the, the West Coast uh, when I left uh, Columbia, eventually uh, to uh, UC Berkeley. And it was my intention then always to go to India to study with the Tibetan lamas who I regarded as the living embodiment of this uh, ancient wisdom uh, tra- tradition. Now, of course, I was also very friendly with the Theosophical Society. I taught, gave some lectures at their uh, center in San San Francisco, and uh, later in India. I stayed for a time in Adyar, which is their international headquarters, and uh, uh, Kalakshetra, which was their uh, 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 art school, uh, and so on. But it was quite clear to me that uh, theosophy was not Tibetan Buddhism. but I still have a a very friendly relationship with uh, uh, various trends in Western esotericism, uh, including uh, uh, Wicca and the Freemasons and uh, things like that. But anyway, when I went to uh, Berkeley, I started studying uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan with the idea of going to uh, India to study under the lamas there, not just as an academic study, but as a practitioner. And uh, then my uh, professor, uh, also that was the first year they started teaching Tibetan at the university, and my professor, who happened to come from Sweden, but anyway, he told me that if I was really interested in Tibetan, they had started a program emphasizing uh, Tibetan at the University of Washington. And so then I uh, transferred to the University of uh, uh, Washington and began my uh, uh, studies there. So I took my uh, second year of uh, Tibetan language spoken and written there. And I was very fortunate in my time going there because Professor Wiley, who is the usual professor, went on sabbatical to Italy to see the great Tibetologist Giuseppe Tucci. And so they brought in Hugh Richardson from the UK to teach Tibetan history for a year. And that was marvelous because he had lived in Tibet for more than four, fourteen years, first as the representative of the uh, British Go government, and later for a couple of years for the independent Indian Go government, living in Yansai and in uh, also uh, Lhasa. He took thousands of photographs when when he was there, and. Uh, he was very sympathetic to Tibetans and Tibetan culture. And so on. he wasn't a Buddhist, but he was sympathetic. And uh, so we read various uh, historical texts. And so within that year, but also the university reco- uh, recruited Professor Edward Konza. Who had just before been uh, two years at the University of uh, Wisconsin, brought there by Professor Richard Robinson. And uh, uh, he arrived and uh, gave some lectures and then began uh, teaching regularly uh, the uh, following year. And he was certainly the best professor I've ever had. I mean, He was incredible, and he had a fine Gallic sense of humor because the Konza family were originally Huguenots who had fled uh, France in the 16th century and had settled in uh, Cologne on the Rhine River in Germany. And his family were, uh, they ran the big silk mills in, in, in there, so it was a very wealthy family. But he was a younger son. So he didn't inherit, his older brother got the uh, company. So they just sent him to the university. So he took uh, degrees in philosophy, psychology, Sanskrit, and that uh, kind of thing. And of course, also he was a bit uh, uh, rebellious in his generation. And he did some things like marry a fine Jewish lady Actually, later I also did that, but uh, and he joined the Communist Party, and he was uh, the editor of the principal uh, Communist newspaper for Northern Germany. All right, that's what later got him into trouble, and uh, I was kind. He he really liked me, so we had a special relationship. After the others left the seminar send said that no, you, you stay and we sit in his office and he had a fridge built into his desk he pulls that out and he had imported german beers there you know from bavaria Weissenbier stuff like this and then he tell tell me these stories you know and about his uh Uh, own life, for example. When uh, Hitler and the Nazis took over in 1933, he was a little paranoid of what would happen then. But he went to this uh, party in uh, Lubeck, kind of rather aristocratic uh, party. And there, there was a Prussian officer, you know, like out of the movies, tall, blonde, all this. And uh, he was in the SS. uh, And he came up and shook uh, Kanza's hand and said, ah, I'm so happy to meet you, Herr Professor Kanza. You have done so much for the cause of Buddhism and theosophy, because many people in Kanza's family are theosophists, and we're very grateful for what you're doing. But now uh, certain problems are uh, arising Uh, for you, or should I say, comrade, and he used uh, Konza's uh, party name. And he said his blood turned to ice water at that point, but the officer said, but don't worry, I've arranged for you and your wife to leave tonight on a boat to Denmark because now the Gestapo knows your uh, secret ID, and you would be arrested in a few days and sent to a concentration camp. So he he and his wife escaped to Denmark. And then because his father had been for a time in the diplomatic service and he'd been uh, born in the German embassy in uh, London, He was eligible for British uh, citizenship and he also received the help of uh, Bertrand Russell and Barbara Ward and uh, so he and his wife got uh, residence in the UK or citizenship in in the UK and for years he was then the vice president of the London Buddhist Society under its president, uh, Christmas Humphreys. So he had many funny stories to tell about Christmas Humphreys, who was actually the hanging judge. Uh, Christmas, although being a good Buddhist and theosophist, uh, still he condemned many prisoners to death. And then he would like to go to Newgate prison and lecture the prisoners there on their bad karma. And Kansa said he didn't think this was very good uh, activity for a practicing Buddhist. Well, anyway, he had many uh, stories like that. He was also in Barcelona during the uh, uh, Spanish Civil War as a journalist and. uh, uh, when the anarcho-syndicalists took over the country or, or over the city, I should say, and when Stalin uh, sold them out to Franco and uh, Kanza was disgusted by <laughs> Stalin's activity. And that converted him to being more an anarcho-syndicalist than uh, a, a communist. And he also told me that uh, when he was running a... Communist cell in in London. Uh, they were always instructed in the party that you never talked about what it would be like after the revolution. You only talk about what how you get to the re- revolution. But they say. Konza was a rebel, he never obeyed orders like that. So he brought this up and he said he was totally amazed because it was a mixed cell. You had working class people and you had intellectuals. Well, the intellectuals and artistic types, they all thought that after the revolution, it would be this hippie paradise and the government would be giving all kinds of money to art and theater and dance and all this kind of thing. And uh, But the working class people, they're saying, oh, now I can get a car. And the shop girls would say, oh, now I can get silk stockings and so on. He saw there was quite a cultural difference uh, here. So it was wonderful talking with with, uh, him about this. But of course, uh, after two years, then the problem developed, because. There was a renewal of his uh, renewal of his U.S. visa as a visiting professor, and uh, uh, he well, we, we had this e- excellent uh, uh, professor Spellman uh, teaching Indian history, and he had studied with Basham in uh, uh, London and so on, and. Uh, the other faculty members decided to get rid of him because on an alternative radio program, he had advocated the legalization of marijuana. That was a no-no in, in those days. So they decided this guy has to go. And so they wrote up a phony report saying he faked his PhD and he really doesn't know. Sanskrit. So Kanza thought this was a little strange, and so he uh, called uh, uh, Spelman into his uh, uh, office and said, Oh, well, I'm, I'm researching this, but there's some re- reference to the ma- Mahabharata. Uh, can you tell me more precisely what this says? And, and gave him the Sanskrit text. And Spellman, of course, was able to read it. You know. So then so all all this was fake. They were just trying to dump this guy for political reason, uh, reasons. And of course, he was kicked out of the university and they smeared him throughout the States. He could not get another job in the US. So he had to go to Canada and he got a position up there in Toronto or so, uh, some such place. So. There was all this going on in the politics of of this. Now, of course, I was in a good good position because after Sputnik, the Americans got very paranoid. And so the usual uh, solution in those days was to throw money at at a problem. So they created the uh, National Defense Education Act, establishing foreign language and science uh, fellowships. So I got a fellowship to study Tibetan. And of course, then the uh, CIA was mainly interested in having us uh, design uh, anti-Chinese propaganda in the Tibetan language. Uh, They had this crazy scheme that they were going to drop these flyers over Tibet and so on. I I couldn't take any of this seriously. And I never went for the CIA interview. My friend Mel Goldstein did, but I I never did. I had no no interest. And of course, I was very much opposed to the Vietnam War, not only because I was against war, But I'd study Asian history. I knew that the Vietnamese and Chinese had been enemies for a 1,000 years. There was no way that uh, Ho Chi Minh and Mao Zedong were going to become friendly and really get get along. This whole adventure of the Americans in Vietnam was uh, uh, totally crazy. Well, because of this uh, political situation and Professor Kanza had persuaded me to become uh, the first student in his Buddhist uh, PhD program. This left me totally vulnerable when uh, he left. I didn't have a uh, protector uh, anymore. And of course, when I was uh, up there, I mean, uh, originally, when I applied to go to the University of Washington, uh, I knew you had to have a certain image. This is back in the early, in the 60s and so on. So I I looked a bit like a hippie at Berkeley. Well, I cut off my beard, got a haircut, got a tweed jacket, and things like this. I went up, had an interview, got admitted, no problem. And I also knew that you never said anything about being a practicing Buddhist. Now, in those days at the university, it was perfectly okay to be a Christian and study Christian history and the early church fathers and all that. And it was okay to be Jewish and study Jewish history and the Torah and all this kind of thing. But no, no, no. If you're uh, an American, uh, uh, a person of white European descent, you cannot be a Muslim and study Islam. You cannot be a Buddhist and study Buddhism. You cannot be a Hindu and study... Islam. You could bring, occasionally, natives to teach something like that. So I kept it cool. But Kanza blew my scene because he was one of the few professors in those days who was actually a practicing Buddhist and had practiced meditation. During the during the war, when uh, MI6 tried to recruit him uh, to work work for them, you know, reading uh, I don't know all the German communications and the, and the rest of it. As a Buddhist, he was opposed to war in general. So, what did they do? So, okay, you cannot stay in London. They sent him into exile in Wales for five years and he largely just worked out there as a gardener and, and so on during that time. And he systematically uh, practiced Buddhist meditation, taking uh, the Vasudhi Magga from Pali tradition as his source and, and so on. So he, he understands that uh, to really understand what the Buddhists are talking about, you have to get into uh, this that you just can't do it separately in intellectually, like our European Western idea that we have a subjective consciousness which can stand apart from phenomena and we can just observe it. We can observe what these natives are doing and we can try and figure out what they're up to and, and so on. Uh, what is now called uh, participant uh, research well, uh, even when I was studying anthropology at the uh, Columbia, uh, this this was also a bit of a, a, a no-no too. So I knew about also. So I, I played the game. But becoming his student, that blew my cover there in Seattle. So after he was kicked out of the country, uh, I knew my PhD had been sunk, and so I just wanted to go to India, so I went back down to uh, Berkeley, where my wife at that time had uh, joined the university uh, uh, again and so on, I stayed with her, and a friend of mine passing through New York had met the Tibetan Lama there. and who she had earlier met when she was in India. She wrote to me saying, oh, I I met him here. Uh, He might be interested in uh, coming out to Berkeley. And uh, so I wrote to him. And his name was Tartangtuku. Now, my first lama was in Seattle. That was Dejong Rinpoche. And he was a real saint. He was a wonderful uh, person. but he, he was a Sakipa Lama, and he was a tutor to the branch of the uh, Sakipa family that was living in Seattle at, at that time, who had been re- recruited with a lot of, uh, they had a Ro- Rockefeller grants. They were op- operating this Inner Asia project on. Anyway, so that's why we had uh, all those uh, uh, Tibetans then in, at the university and in uh, uh, C- Seattle. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, Dejong Rinpoche was my first Lama. Uh, I received various uh, empowerments or wongs from him, Chen Chenrezig, Tara, Padmasambhava, uh, like this. I used to sit in on pujas at his house and with his uh, brother, who was an amchi or Tibetan doctor, and his sister was an ani or a nun. And this, but I still wanted to get into uh, the Nyingmapa tradition and uh, uh, Zangchen. but uh, Dejin Rinpoche comes from Kham, And in Kham, Eastern Tibet, they're not so sectarian there, unlike Central uh, Tibet. So he didn't have any problem with this. And in fact, uh, what we read together was uh, the, Kunsang uh, Lama which is Pato uh, Rinpoche's uh, commentary on the Ngundro or preliminary uh, practices from the Longchen Nyingtik tradition. And of course, in those days, Longchen uh, Nyingtik was the most popular uh, uh, form of Dzogchen uh, practice among the uh, Tibetans and so on. So that was great. Uh, But Tartantuku was uh, an Nyingma Palama. So I invited him to my house. He arrived a month later in a van full of uh, uh, hippies. And uh, he stayed with with me. And I arranged for him to meet uh, uh, Alan Watts and uh, Mike Murphy of the Esalen Institute. Because I used to, uh, before I... uh, joined Berkeley, the university, I lived in Sausalito on a houseboat. And I happened to be uh, next to Varda's ha- houseboat, where Alan Watts was living. So I got to know him personally. So, anyway, uh, so I made this connection. And then Mike Murphy arranged for Tartung Tuku to give his first lecture at the Unitarian Church in San, San Francisco. And we drew a big uh, uh, crowd and then we uh, established a good re- relationship with uh, Suzuki Roshi and the San Francisco Zen Center and they were also very uh, helpful and then we got a house on Web- Webster Street in Berkeley for Tartung Duku and uh, I established for, for him the uh, Tibetan Nyingmapa Meditation Center and uh, so I was responsible then for establishing at least one of the first uh, dharma centers in, in the West, of the US. Uh, and uh, so I was there for a time, but my main aim was to go, go to India. And so then uh, I saw, well, what was happening with, with this, that the real function of a dharma center president was to raise funds for the center. <laughs> and I didn't want to do this there very much. But at that time, Tukku was always fascinated by publishing. He had bought a, a old typeset press uh, for a Tibetan, in which he had in storage in Varanasi in India. And uh, Well, OK, he bought a press there, there in, in the U.S., and he started printing, and uh, he printed a Tibetan text of the Sangwe Yingpo, which is an uh, important uh, uh, tantra in the Nyingma uh, tra- tra- tradition. And so when I arranged with uh, my father to go to uh, India, uh, he said, here, you can take these texts and deliver them. And he gave me a long list of uh, Nyingma palamas. So it was a great introduction when I got to India. I'd show up and present them with these books that uh, Tartan Tulku had published. So I have to be grateful for uh, him doing this. Then his center kind of evolved beyond this and produced things like time, space, and knowledge, which is kind of his own separate take on some things and so on. So it moved away from the Tibetan tradition, at least in the traditional sense. And I, I didn't have any more uh, contact, but uh, my father's still in the shipping business and he was uh, friendly with uh, some very rich uh, Greeks who own ships like Onassis and Narco, New York and so on. And so he put my then wife and myself on a ship and sent us off to India. So we departed with a full load of coal from Newport News, Virginia, sailed down through the Panama Canal all the way across the Pacific Ocean to Osaka, Japan, and so we got to spend a, a month in Japan then. I particularly liked visiting Nara, which was an ancient capital of Japan before Kyoto, and where you had all very old temples, but of different schools. Because in China, the situation became quite, quite different. The government, and this is long before the communists is back with the uh, Ming uh, and so on, uh, they, Taoists. Uh, uh, some Taoists had uh, agitated against the uh, the Buddhists there, and the uh, government said, "Oh, well, these Buddhist monks—they don't uh, produce anything. They're social paran- uh, 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 parasites, and so they temporarily ba- uh, ban this." But. Chan Buddhism was different because Chan monks get out, work in the garden, do all kinds of useful things and so on. So they exempted Chan Buddhism. and So then kind of the rest of Chinese Buddhism merged into Chan, becoming then a big suit. In Japan, totally different. Japan is a fantastic museum for the development of Buddhism with each sect keeping very separate temples and uh, all this. You see it in in Nara. And you have the Tendai and the Shingon and the Hoso and uh, all all this. So it's a marvelous place to do research like that. But I wanted to get to India. And so then we got another ship and we went to Thailand and finally got to uh, Calcutta and from uh, Calcutta went to Varanasi and finally New Delhi. Well, my wife had been uh, a member of a Buddhist meditation group in Berkeley, and their teacher came from uh, Kerala. He was a a, a Hindu man and also uh, a professor in this. So she was practicing with, with this group. And when we were leaving, she asked him, who we should see in India, and uh, he suggested Swami Omkar in Andhra Pradesh. He has an ashram there. And this was also very fortuitous, but in Delhi, after being uh, several weeks in India, we separated. She went down to South India, to the a- ashram, and I went up north to uh, first Dalhousie, and then Dharamsala, and Jong, and these places, you know, in Himachal uh, Pradesh. And uh, then she wrote to me, oh, Come down here uh, after you're finished up there, and uh, Swami Unkar will see about our visa and so on. So, at those those days, an American could stay three months in India, and then often it was difficult to uh, uh, extend that because in Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India at that time, she didn't like Americans very much. Her father. Uh, Pundit uh, Nehru had feuded with the American foreign minister, uh, Dulles, and so on. And so, unlike you guys from the British Commonwealth, you didn't need visas for India. You guys could just stay as long as you wanted, uh, but we Americans in <laughs> a different situation. So, Uh, So then I went to Bombay in time to catch the monsoon and wade through the streets with waist deep water. But my father had shipped all uh, the books that Tartung Tulku had printed, and I picked them up in uh, uh, Bombay. And uh, then with the help of various coolies, loaded the books on train and crossed uh, from uh, Bombay now called Mumbai, but those days it was Bombay, uh, to Hyderabad and then changed trains there and went to Patapuram in and, uh, coastal Andhra uh, Pr- Pr- Pradesh. And then uh, I had sent a, a telegram to the Ashram saying I come, but in those days, the Indian postal system, very different from what we're used to in Tibet. That if you send a Special telegram, you know, for immediate delivery. The postal service doesn't take it there. They wait till they have several telegrams before they deliver it. So I had to sleep for a night in the local train station there. But finally, they sent a van down from the ashram and got me. But Swami Onkar, it turned out, uh, not only did swami shivananda who is very famous in yoga circles live there first before he went to brishikesh and swami omkar himself had been several times uh, to the us and so on and uh, it happened that his disciple uh, was vv v. giri then president of india That arranged our visas. We didn't even have to go into the police. The SP superintendent of police would send his man out. He would collect our passports, go back, come back the next day with all the stamps and residence paper for a year. Okay, that worked. But all right, my wife stayed there acting as an English language secretary to the ashram for the next uh, three, four years. And I was able to go up to uh, Darjeeling and take these books. And so uh, I had met earlier when I first went to uh, Sarnath Tuku Pema. He was one of the Ninh students there at the Tibetan University. When they set up this uh, Tibetan, uh, Central Tibetan University, they ensured that each of the four schools would have a number of representative students. So I met the Nyingmapa group, and also uh, Kempo Paldin Sharap, who was their principal teacher. And then we talked about what to do with Tartrantuku's old press, and so I arranged to have the coolies bring it from Varanasi. It had been stored in the Burmese temple there, Uh, bring it to Sarnath and put it in a a hut someplace. And if any of the students were interested in using this to publish something, they, they could. But anyway, Tuku Pema spoke excellent English, and he told me about his father, Conjure Rinpoche in Darjeeling. And so when I went uh, up there, I went to uh, Mrs. Pema's uh, uh, lodge and and stayed there. Well, it turns out that I met a a number of people uh, who I know to this day like Keith Dowman, who also does translations, and uh, uh, Steve Landsberg, who is an excellent sitar uh, player, and uh, so on, and uh, 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 other people. And so I got to meet uh, Kanjo Rinpoche, so he became one of my uh, teachers. But most importantly, Dujim Rinpoche had just bought a house in Darjeeling. He had been living in Kalampong, which is well, it's separated by mountains. It's not that far, but you go up and down and, yeah, like, like this uh, there. And uh, Kalampong's on the way to uh, Sikkim. Well, anyway, he bought this house, and so I got to uh, meet meet him there, and. My spoken Tibetan was still primitive, and so Tupu Pema helped translate and uh, all, all that. My spoken Tibetan got somewhat better. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, that's where I met him. And then uh, I also had the uh, books to take to uh, Chanto Rinpoche, who had a, a gompa in Jor Bungalow, which was just south of, uh, Dar, Darjeeling, and so I presented them, and he had been a the principal disciple of Sarakandro, who was a woman lama who had married one of the sons of uh, Lingpa, and Dujim Rinpoche is the Kuku, or reincarnation, of Lingpa. So this is all family. And at a, a later point, I went up to uh, Sikkim with, with books, too, to see Dodochen Rinpoche at his uh, uh, Gumpa and Stupa at Turali and present them and so on. And he gave me copies of what he had printed from the Longchen ning uh, because he was a Chirda, uh, owner of the tradition, you you, you might say, that descended from the first uh, Dodipchen Rinpoche, who was a principal disciple of uh, Longchenpa, who had lived in central Tibet, but Dodipchen uh, uh, came from Golok in East Tibet. And of course, then there's also the fascinating story that the first Dodo Chen Rinpoche had a secret affair with the queen of Dergay and so on. So interesting uh, stories. Well, a- anyway, we so met him. And uh, also, while I was there, I met uh, 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 other lamas. Uh, Prince Ben met Kala Rinpoche from the Karma Karmakaju tradition. Received many empowerments from him, uh, not only karma kaju but also uh, shangpa uh, kaju because he was a lineage holder for for that which came from chungbo naljor who started out as a bumpo and then went to uh, india and met uh, naropa's sister and became her one of her principal disciples and brought this transmission back to tibet the the Khajupas, uh, have a tendency to uh, separate into different subsects and so on. So you have the Karma Kaju, the Dukpa ka-ju, the Drigung Kaju, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, uh, we had Dukpa Dukse Rinpoche, who used to come riding into Kathmandu on his uh, horse. He was a, a very important lama in the Dupakaju uh, lineage. And so uh, in his monastery outside of Darjeeling, I met the Dukchen Rinpoche, who was a child at that time, and I came in to meet him and he pulled out his water pistol and shot at us. But he was very friendly, very very friendly boy. Now, of course, he's quite grown. And uh, so these were the good good days in Darjeeling. Uh, but then uh, everything changed when the communist government came into West Bengal and all of a sudden they made it very difficult for us Westerners to get the Darjeeling permit because you need a special permit to go there a- after that war with China in uh, nineteen sixty-two, And they also made it very difficult for Tibetan refugees. They also had to get a, a permit. So that meant that uh, The big Nyingma Palamas shifted over to Kathmandu. Now, what got me into Nepal was Chanto Rinpoche. and he was also. I got my first uh, Dakini initiation for Dorji Dur, uh, Naljorma from him, coming from Saracondro. and he actually put on her hat when he gave me he gave us. I so said we, we had some other people there too. Gave us the uh, the wand and so on. Well, anyway, he suggested he wanted to build a gompa at Parping, south of uh, Kathmandu, and I should go over and check out the scene there and so on. And he said, and if you go, you can stay with my friend. The the Chinni Lama. Well, I later found out that when he escaped from Tibet, he came down into Nepal rather than Bhutan or, or one of these other other places, and he had also been in an affair with the Chinni Lama's eldest daughter, so he had good relations with this uh, family. And the Chinni Lama was the head of the uh, Taman. Uh, community in Boda. Boda is where this huge uh, Bodhnath Stupa is. You know, it used to be outside of Kathmandu in the country when I first got it. No longer, it's all one huge city in that valley now. But anyway, and uh, uh, so see him. Uh, so okay, I went to Patna and got a very cheap flight. About probably fifteen dollars from Patna to Kathmandu, and we flew up there. And then we're circling the airport, and they made the announcement: Well, we can't land until they chase all the cows off the landing field. <laughs> and then, then we came down and landed. There was a hut there. Went through immigration. This, and I got a taxi. And I said, Ah, oh, I want to go to Boda. So we pulled out and we got on the Chinese road, which was barely knew about two years old then, very well built. The Chinese built excellent roads. And we got as far as the crossroads at Chabo and then the driver refused to go down this dirt road to Boda. Why? Because the compas are there and they all have guns. He was afraid. So I had to take my backpack and sleeping bag, et cetera, and hike down there. You go to Boda at that time, it was going back to the Middle Ages. There was no electricity, no running water. You had to go to the toilet. You went out into the fields <laughs> this kind of, kind of thing. No restaurants. This was medieval. Uh, but I, I found the Lama's house, which was the, the biggest one in the village, built around the stupa and of course the first thing he wanted to do was buy my sleeping bag and then sell me some pot Uh, but then uh, I explained I needed a room so he called in Nimbabo, his oldest son who had just built another new cement house and uh, I got a room, room in there And then at this time, I I met uh, Ketsun Sangbo Rinpoche, who had just come from uh, Japan, where he'd been teaching at the university there for two years. And so he was looking very Japanese in a suit and so on. But uh, anyway, and he had a, a Welsh lady with him who was his student, and this, but she was actually, she told me, a follower of T. T Song Rampa. She was reading the Rampa books from that, that time, because Westerners still had many strange uh, ideas about what uh, Tibet was. But anyway, we were all able to go to Parping. And at that time, uh, there was the Asura cave of Guru Rinpoche, but it just had an iron gate on it. We found that Dar had the key; he let us in. And then later we visited the Vajrayogini temple down there and saw we could practice meditation in the uh, cave. And, and this, of course, now it's all built up. <laughs> totally different. But this is the way it was. Then also another point we visited Duchin kali which is just south of there. That's the sacred site of Kali. On Saturdays, they do all the animal sacrifices there. My friend Sheldon Rockland made a, a film of them sacrificing some poor goat for Kali. And, and this which he later put in a film which uh, called Nepal, Land of the Gods. And uh, I wrote the script for, for that uh, film. And it used to be distributed years ago by Mi- Mystic Fire, but Children's passed away, so I, I don't know what's happened there a- anymore. And the technologies, uh, I still have some old film from, from there, but I don't even have a machine I can look <laughs> at. That. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, That uh, got me into the scene of uh, uh, Boda and and then uh, Dujim Rinpoche moved uh, to Kathmandu so I could get to see him and so on. And in 1977, uh, some of the local uh, businessmen, they gave him their former mahjong. Uh, Tibetans were very much into marjong, this gambling uh, game. And they gave it to him. So it became the core of creating a new uh, gompa there in uh, Kathmandu. And so 1977, uh, he gave all the wangs from uh, his own tradition, the Dujim Tersa, the new treasures of Dujim. These are uh, principally the termas of his predecessor, Dujim Lingpa, who lived in this wild place, uh, Golok in uh, eastern uh, Tibet in Kham, or actually it's on the border between Kham and Amdo uh, pra- provinces, and uh, his own termas. But the bulk of them come from uh, Dujim Lingpa, who is a fascinating figure because he wasn't like the usual lama who was recognized as a toku and put in a monastery for an education and all this. He wasn't educated in the monastery, self-educated, but his basic teachings came from his visions. And he received an endless numbers of visions, some of which uh, have been translated into English now as uh, uh, I think the book is Buddhism Without uh, Meditation, something like, like that. But anyway, uh, later other famous lamas like Jamyang Yun Wangpo and Kongcho Rinpoche and Lama Mipam and so on all recognized the authenticity of these thermas that he had received both as satyr, that is, physical objects. And as Ducknum, pure visions. Now, the physical, when I was the Dujim Rinpoche in Darjeeling uh, one time, uh, he showed me some these, uh, uh, what's called the uh, Sersok, golden paper. Uh, which has this diet this dakini writing on it, which uh, kind of incomprehensible hieroglyphics and uh, so on. So the Terton has to translate that into Tibetan, and sometimes they're not able to do that, and so they have to give it to another Terton who can uh, do that. So I. Uh, felt very privileged to actually see these as physical objects and not just all made up like Western scholars say, you know. Uh, uh, Anyway, uh, we are able to uh, uh, do things like that. But uh, this was Nepal and there was always problems about staying there a long time. Everybody, uh, the UK people too, you know. (laughs) The Nepalese, well, some people could buy visas. Some, uh, you know, there were some ways to stay longer. But that was always a uh, problem. So I was going back and forth between the US and and this. In the US, I got involved in the Dharma Center scene in New York and California with uh, the Kala Rinpoche Center. I was one of the founders of the Kala Rinpoche Center in New York. And uh, when Dujim Rinpoche came on his second trip to the US, he agreed to a center being uh, created in New York. But at that time, he called me into his room and said, don't get involved in the politics of the center. You have a personal relationship with me, you just work with, with that, and the center take care of itself. So, OK, I, I stayed out of uh, all that uh, um, politics. And uh, later, uh, he retired to uh, France, and he became a bit frail, so he didn't return to the US. Uh, sometimes his wife and uh, son dawa would come and so on. But in the uh, meantime, I had, uh, now, Dujim Rinpoche was my first Dzogchen teacher. In the meantime, I connected with my second uh, Dzogchen teacher, Namkai Norbu. I first heard about him from uh, an Austrian friend of mine who had met him uh, in Italy. She'd gone to one of his retreats and invited him to Vienna, and he went there. And then uh, the English also invited him. He went to the UK, to Norfolk, and did a retreat there. Okay, so I had heard about him, and now he came to the U.S. for uh, a a visit. So, of course, I went to see him in New York, but then he departed for California, and I was in New York. But the following year, I decided to go out there, and i had also heard the rumor that it had gone around in California that Namkai Norbu is against the Ngundra. This is a big heresy and a sin in the American Buddhist community. Well, okay, Uh, I went out there and uh, I went to the airport to meet him, and Rinpoche got off the plane with 35 Italians. And at that time, the lira was up, the dollar was down. And so the Italians had lots of money to spend, rented cars and all this. And we had a retreat in uh, uh, Northern California like we've never had before. It was like a Fellini movie with all these colorful Italians and all this kind kind of thing. And Rinpoche had recovered from an illness, and he was feeling strong. And, man, he taught three times a day in the morning, uh, afternoon, in the evening. But in the afternoon after the teaching, we all go out and swim in the river and so on. And some of those Italian girls, wow, they were willing to go naked in the river. It was very. was This was not like the usual American retreat. <laughs> uh, 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 anyway, and in the evening, he'd like to hang out uh, and so on, you know, and tell stories and, and whatnot. Okay, great. We had uh, uh, three weeks of that, and he had started a new series, Dzogchen uh, Semday. So we did Zochin Sembe. The following year, he came again. But we went to a different uh, place, this time in the uh, foothills of the uh, Sierras, uh, e- uh, east of uh, San Francisco and so on, and we did the uh, Z- Long Longde. Now, right after that, there was a, another uh, zöchen Z- teacher, uh, Lama Gompo Tseiten, he had been earlier invited by the Dujum Rinpoche group under uh, Jato Rinpoche in the West, West Coast to come. So he had come and started teaching. And he, he gave a Longchen Ningtik retreat. And so I went for that after the retreat with uh, Namkanova. Now, Namkanova became my second Zhouchen teacher. Now, <laughs> with You have these uh, practices called rushas. And in theory, you do them naked. But Tibetans are not much into nakedness. So they make these little anraks. They kind of look like a a tutu that a ballet dancer in the old days used to wear, kind of goofy looking. So they made those. And I didn't use this. I just wrapped a a red lungi around myself. But I, I came at the you know, a little late, so I was able to get away. But anyway, there's this section in the Rucha Nexus where you act out the different destinies of rebirth. And of course, everyone focuses on the animals. So they're all being animals and making animal cries. And these guys uh, half-naked in their tutus are chasing after these bare-breasted girls in their tutus running around screaming. And across the valley, made so much noise, the neighbors out there heard this and thought the Buddhists were killing each other. And so they called the sheriff. And so The sheriff deputies came up with six cars, you know, with the lights going around on top up into the car park. Well, fortunately, one of our members was a psychotherapist, and he was uh, standing there just at the the car park when the sheriff's deputies arrived, reaching for their guns because they don't, uh, maybe these Buddhists are dangerous or something. Well, anyway, they they asked him, What's going on? He said, oh, we're doing Buddhist gestalt therapy. They're just acting out different animal roles and so on. And the police said, oh, gestalt therapy. This being California, of course the police know what gestalt therapy is. They said, OK, OK. But just tell them to be more quiet. The neighbors over there are complaining and so on. But one of the sheriff's deputies went into a cafe down in the town, and he is talking to the local newspaper reporter and say, you know what those crazy Buddhists are doing. So an article appeared in Buddha, in the local newspaper. The San Francisco newspaper picked up on that. Ooh. And so it got all the way to Madison, Wisconsin, where the Dalai Lama and his entourage with the Dharamsala government uh, were there. And so they were complaining about what these Yingmapas are doing and giving a bad reputation to the Buddhist community. Anyway, continues uh, several more years with uh, Lama Gompo, but I also started going to Marigar in Europe, which was Namkai Norbu's, uh, Uh, retreat center in northern Italy in Toscana. I loved uh, Toscana and those visits uh, to uh, Italy. It was a very international uh, community too. And and then uh, some more retreats with him in the U.S. and ended up with him writing forwards to Two of the books uh, I've been set self liberation and golden letters, both of which were published by uh, a Snow Lion in the old days, but now Snow Lion's out of business, so they sold it to Shambhala. So now uh, Shambhala has it and they put it on Kindle and things like that. Well, uh, uh, then uh, it was Namkhai Norbu. Well. I had a different experience with uh, With, with uh, Dujan Rinpoche was teaching Dzogchen in the context of the Therma tradition that he, he received. And so he began with Semchi, which is this dialogue between the master and the disciple about what is mind. And this sometimes gives some exercises. You go out and do them. You come back, talk about your experiences. What this? What Namkhai Norbu did very much because he did this series of three-year series in California of Sutchen Sem Days, Long Days, Sutchen upadesha, He put it in a much larger context for me, which especially because I also happen to be a scholar, not just a simple practitioner, and it opened the whole thing because uh the Therma tradition began in the 10th century, 10th, 11th century, and Tibet continues up to today. In the past, there were many satyr, physical objects, including books that were discovered. Now they're mainly gongter, these mind thermas, where various tertans will remember previous incarnation, where they were disciple of Padmasambhava, and will remember the teaching. Okay, uh, or there might be these ducknose pure pure visions. Uh, so uh, Namkhai Norbu put that uh, very much in context uh, for me. And the other thing he did was he was very interested in Bon. He was very interested in the pre-Buddhist uh, civilization of Tibet. He said. Not everything in Tibetan culture comes from India and China. We also have an ancient culture. And the pre-Buddhist uh, culture of Tibet was called uh, Bon. Well, that also interests me because when I was at Columbia, I stud- uh, studied uh, uh, ancient uh, Central Asian tra- traditions and Zoroastrianism and uh, Iranian. Uh, tradition and so on with Professor Dushay Gilaman, who had come there from Belgium and and this. So I was interested in this problem of uh, Iranian uh, Buddhism, because a lot of elements we have, even in Theravada Buddhism, come from the Iranian connection, like Maitreya, comes from there. He was originally the savior god Mithra, and the Buddhists elevate him into being a future uh, Buddha. And then uh, Uh, Buddha Amitabha and his pure land, uh, Sukhavati, that's located in the West, and so on. Well, this also comes out of Iranian Buddhism, where uh, Ahura Mazda is transformed into being uh, the Buddha of infinite light, uh, uh, Amitabha, and uh, the Buddha of infinite life, uh, Amitayus, and so on. So I was very interested in this kind of thing. I was into comparative religion. Not everybody is, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> anyway, so he's talking about Bond. And of course, I had first met him in Boda when he arrived with a group of Italians who were making a film on Tibetan medicine. But at that time, he was speaking Italian, too. So I didn't make the contact until I met him in Berkeley. And of course, the first question I asked him, oh, what's this about you're against uh, the Grendra? And he said, I never said people shouldn't do the Grendra. I simply said, this is the ngundro is not the ngundro for Dzogchen. It's the ngundro for the Tantra system. All those practices are Tantra. There is a special ngundro for Dzogchen, this Kordayrushan uh, Jewa. and that isn't what is these people are calling uh, uh, the ngundro. And so. Uh, then uh, he kept talking about bonds, so I had the idea. I want to go to this Bumpo uh, Gompa at Dolanji in India. But then Rinpoche, uh, uh, Namkhan Orbo Rinpoche, invited Lopan Tenzing Namdak uh, to, uh, uh, well, he came first to the UK and then to America. He's trying to invite him to uh, merigar in Italy, but the Italian uh, foreign ministry was being difficult about that at that time. So when I left the Easter retreat at uh, uh, Marigar, uh, my friend met me at the JFK Airport in New York. We went up to uh, Namkai Norbu's Massachusetts group at Conway. And I met Lopen Tenzing Namda. And he was very interested in doing translations. And immediately we translated the Ursel Dungkor, how you do a dark retreat from the Zogchen. Uh, point of view. And then later I rendezvoused again with him in, in California. And we were working on a translation of the Jawa tree which is the Bumpo manual for uh, uh, making Dzogchen retreats and uh, so on. And I also translated the practice of Zhang Mary. Uh, Mary here is no relation to the Holy Virgin. It means volcano <laughs> in Tibetan. And this is the Yidam meditation deity associated with the uh, Zhangzheng uh, uh, tradition of Dzogchen. Uh, and this was the first book I published as a result of working with uh, Lopan Tenzing Nanda. Uh, Zhangzheng was the ancient the uh, uh, kingdom in northwestern uh, uh, Tibet with Mount Kailas in the center. Zhangzheng uh, Mary, also known as Gekur, was the deity of this mountain and the protector of this kingdom. And he is associated with this uh, lineage. So uh, Namtai Norbu first went to the Bumpo Monastery uh, to receive the Jungjung Jung Mary empowerment from uh, the Lopan. So all us members of his ocean community, we all knew uh, about Jungjung Jung Mary. So when we had the Lopan in California, uh, one friend of mine invited him up into the woods in oregon and i uh, requested that he give us the Jung mary empowerment which he did and so that was uh, the first Bonpo empowerment in, in the west and of course also at that time one of his students keshi Tenzin Wangja had come uh, to marigar and for a couple of years he was like the number to teacher uh, circulating around uh, Italy under and Later, he came to the uh, United States, found the Li Institute. He requested I be a, a director of that, which I was for a time. Anyway, he became very successful in America, has quite a following. And since then, a number of other Llamas have been coming to America. I can't even keep track of it anymore. And of course, now, since I've moved to, to Europe, I'm not always up on the current situation in the U.S. That's why I like talking with my friend, uh, Jimmy Dorje in Houston there. I find, okay, what's happening here in America? Uh, and that, uh, because uh, I was never terribly big on, uh, this internet computer thing because I come from an earlier generation where we read books and we had typewriters. I I still use the computer like it's a typewriter. I type up my final draft there. But before that, I'm writing it on paper with pencil and so on. So I feel like I'm from another age and the whole world has just moved on. But I think I take this with a a sense of humor. (laughs) How much more time do we have?
0: As much time as you like. I have lots of questions. I don't think we'll get to all of the questions. I might have to petition you for a sequel, you know.
1: Oh, fine. No problem. One
0: question I have, if we go right, right back, is you had a out-of-body experience uh, in a car accident right before university. Now we're going right, right back. I'm wondering if you could say something about that. And if there was something about, when you read the Bardo Tujol, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as as it's called, that somehow connected to that automobile accident. Maybe you could say something about that.
1: Yeah, well, it certainly made me very aware of my mortality. Because when you're a, a young guy, you're not thinking about that. And you take many chances. Like, they can only use young guys as fighter pilots because they don't have the concept they can die. And so they'll take all these chances. Well, this suddenly made it very real to me that I could be severely injured and even uh, die. Now, unfortunately, the driver of the car had been drinking a a little bit. I wasn't really aware of this, but he had three of us in the front seat And he lost control of the car when we were driving around this lake and the car lunged down into the lake. But unfortunately, in the lake, uh, there were these stumps, you know, parts of uh, the tree, but they were a bit under the water. So the car came down and hit there. And my head went into the windscreen and broke it and went out a, a little bit. And suddenly I found myself Outside that, not feeling anything. And I looked over to the right and I saw the police car with the lights going on and arriving, and the policeman jumping out and running over to me, over to us. And suddenly I was back in my body and my head hurt like hell, you know. And the police called the ambulance, and they took me to the uh, hospital. And the doctors sewed me up. I had this uh, cut over here. Fortunately, it missed my eye. I didn't lo- lose an eye. And that, but it made me very uh, uh, aware, not only that there are experiences you have that aren't accounted for in our usual scientific model of, of reality. But I had also much earlier, starting when I was three years old, we were still in Princeton, New Jersey, because my father was trying to get a job teaching at the writing at the U- University. And this experience where these spirits rose out of the what? because we, we were in, in this house, and then there was a kind of swampy area. And these spirits rose out of the water and they communicated to me that they lived beneath the earth in these jewel cities and so on. And they'd like me to visit them uh, some. So I came and told my mother uh, uh, about this. And then she told my father and well, he had studied geology at Princeton University. So he thought, oh, it must be dinosaurs. So he took me to the University Museum, showing me uh, dinosaurs. But these were not dinosaurs, they were water spirits, or later in India, we call them nagas. So I always felt connection with these nagas and, and so on. And uh, later we're moving uh, our house in the suburb in North, northern New Jersey was just at the edge of the suburb The forest began and then farms and so on. So I got to spend a lot of time on my own wandering around the uh, forest and I uh, met all kinds of, uh, of spirits uh, and so on. And, but I learned that in American culture, we don't talk about that because uh, either people are very strong Christians, and they think, oh, these are devils and whatnot, or they're very strong science. And uh, so they think, oh, the kid's going schizophrenic. And, and so boom. I learned how to fit into American society and not talk about personal uh, I- experiences. So uh, uh, I didn't, but moving into other cultures in India and all that things are quite different. And did you
0: continue to have those experiences? And did you talk about them with your lamas, such as Dutra Rinpoche, etc.?
1: Oh, yes. In fact, I still, because uh, uh, 2018, the Dakinis came to me and gave me very strong warning, saying, you guys now have 12 years. So that's until two thousand thirty. If you guys don't get it together with the climate, you're going under. It came on very strong, and so all right. But now, I read the latest report coming from the UN. They're saying the same thing. So my docentes are not crazy, and. I always follow the weather in the U.S. on the, in the internet news. I can't believe it. You know, it's gotten so different from when I lived in the, in the U.S. You know, and so okay, but I don't see them making more than really cosmetic changes uh, uh, to what's happening with the climate, which is no longer. Climate change, it is now climate crisis and 2030 climate catastrophe, but maybe even sooner. I mean, I don't know. I don't think extinction. I think that we have enough technology that some rich people can survive by having refrigerated satellites circling the earth, things like that. But it's looking more dodgy now whether civilization as we know it now can continue as it is now. I don't think it can continue as it is now. Because we've been at this for 200 years. I mean, many positive things about industrialization and so on. And also, they've done many good things socially in terms of extending voting rights to poor people and women and things like this. But the climate is something else again. Things are heating up. Greenland and Antarctica are melting faster and faster. The seas are rising. Of course, where I'm staying at the moment, in the city of Stettin Poland, just on the German border. We're on big, uh, big hill above the river. But by 2050, that may be an island, you know? <laughs> so, OK. Are they going to do anything about it? I'm not very impressed. You have, uh, what's her name, Gretchen from Sweden, you know, saying things and so on, and they make pious noises and all these conferences and so on, but actually more and more oil is being drilled, more and more coal is being burned, and it goes on because they're making money. So it's all about money, and money may eventually ruin civilization. Anyway, that's what the documents (laughs) tell
0: In your meditation retreats and so on, or when you talked with your lamas about these visionary experiences, what sort of things did they say? Are there any interesting touch points there?
1: Oh, yeah, they would come up with similar stories. I mean, when I first got to... The first story I heard from uh, Pema Tulku, he told me, he said that in the time when Guru Rinpoche was there in uh, Tibet, he could see possible events in the future. The, the future is not predetermined, but you can see various uh, energy movements and so on. So he saw the possibility of a Chinese invasion of uh, Tibet. So he established a psychic barrier erecting images of himself all along a certain line in Kham separating from uh, China and so on. Well, that was there up until uh, the beginning of the 20th century when you had these so-called uh, tax-collecting armies come out of uh, Lhasa. And among the uh, people, they were uh, disciples of the great uh, Gelugpa uh, teacher, Pawankapa. Uh They were very sectarian. And so coming into Eastern uh, Tibet with their uh, army, they captured many uh, monasteries, uh, Ningmapa, Bumpo, even Kajupa, and changed them into Kalupa monastery. And they also destroyed these images of uh, uh, Padmasambhava. And so many then uh, Lamas in Darjeeling said that's why the Chinese were just able to walk in and take over the uh, country where the Kampas fought. And when I first went to uh, uh, Boda, General Wangdu was still there. And the compass would spend the winter in Boda, and they were getting all these guns from the CIA. Uh, and then they would go up in the warmer weather to fight in Tibet against the, uh, the Chinese. But the Chinese had such a bigger army and well-equipped and so on, you know. And eventually, when uh, Nick Nixon made the agreements uh, uh, with Ma- Mao Zedong, the CIA withdrew all support from the uh, Compass. There were two chief generals, Baba Yeshe put on ropes and hid in a uh, monastery behind Swayambu for a time before going down to India. General Wangdu marched his uh, rebel group. They were trying to get into uh, Ladakh. They wanted to volunteer to join the Indian army, but they were ambushed uh, there and uh, cut down and that put an end to the Resistance in Tibet, and I don't want to talk about all the inside politics about that because that's a mess. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why I leave it at that. But also, when we're at the Kala uh, at the Kala Chakra Wang in Bogaya, nineteen seventy-four, we stayed in Kala Rinpoche's tent next to the. Bhutanese mission there and he talked about these kinds of visions and prophecies and so on. So this is all alive in Tibetan culture too. And what do you
0: think enables that capacity in some rather than others? Do you think it was that accident that opened that up for you or um, is it achieved through meditative uh, uh, achievement in some way? What predisposes some to, to that or what opens that up to some, rather than others.
1: Well, all, all oh, those I read an interesting book by Morehouse, where he had, when serving with the U.S. military in Jordan, uh, he had a, uh, someone shot at him, and it injured him. But suddenly, he it opened up his uh, capacity for distant viewing, and he worked for many years. Uh, with this secret uh, CIA group that did distant, distant viewing, And the Russians had their group doing the same thing. They're spying on each other's military facilities and, and so on. So there you have an a, example of uh, uh, an accident. Uh, also, uh, meditators who've done long retreats can spontaneously uh, develop this for myself. I put it down to my Celtic ancestry, that I really feel I am Celtic and we're the weird old people in Western Europe who were here before all these Germanic types arrived and so on. And so I think it's in my blood too.
0: I have a question or two about uh, Professor Conze also. Um, you, you mentioned that he became a Buddhist and was a practicing Buddhist. And I wonder what that meant in those days. And, I, well, first of all, m- maybe in order, do you know why he be- how he became and why he became a Buddhist? What did that mean in those days? And uh, he was a Marxist, you said, before that. Yeah, before a um,
1: time,
0: yeah. Yeah. W- did he continue that? Did he change his views at all by the yes. time you knew him?
1: Yes, because, as I said, the big change it began in London. When he saw the different attitudes of uh, being working class people and the intelligentsia, what, what would be human society after the revolution? That got producing doubts in him because he also had this fantasy we're all going to live in this hippie type community with lots of art. Okay. Uh, but what really changes his mind is seeing the betrayal of the anarcho-syndicalists and the communists by Stalin. And that, that convinced him, okay, these guys are just in it for the power. All this ideology and so on, that's just blah, blah. It's all about power politics. Yeah. And of course, Stalin also broke with uh Trotsky. I mean, Trotsky saw, you know, the revolution would be universal, you know, for the whole world through human society. Stalin said, no, 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 just in one country. Because he saw, yeah, you know, he wanted to industrialize Russia. And so, well, you're not going to be able to do this if you're fighting revolutions all, all over the place. So, Kotsky had to leave, and Stalin later had him assassinated in Mexico. Now, Kanza, uh, I think it was a gradual process, because I said his uh, uh, family, they were originally Huguenots, but they became very successful silk merchants in uh, 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 Cologne. And uh, as a younger son, he didn't have to train to take over the business in that, so he could indulge various interests. So the family was already disposed towards uh, the esoteric side of things with uh, uh, theosophy. And then he uh, began uh, studying the uh, lit, lit literature and learning Sanskrit so he could have access to original texts. And I think that's what got him. Into Buddhism, in in particular, then, and in those days, of course, uh, uh, the whole idea of the Western uh, university professor was, you are. Uh, scientific, and you're the almost disembodied intellect that could observe phenomena in the world, uh, especially among the barbaric and savage uh, inhabitants uh, outside of Europe and so on. And so you couldn't go native. <laughs> and to become a, a Buddhist, then for a, a professor, was quite risky. And in fact, he showed me some uh, reviews uh, by Liebenthal of some of his books who attacked him in that regard. You know, being a practicing Buddhist, but I mean, it didn't interfere with his scholarship at all. He was just, you know, sympathetic to his uh, uh, subject, but he could read the Sanskrit quite well and so on. He could read some uh, some Tibetan, he couldn't speak it, but he he could read some some of that too. So like he did this little book of uh, Buddha's Law Among the Birds that was translated from a, a Tibetan text. But mainly his specialty was the Prajnaparamita Sutras. He had planned to translate all of them. And uh, okay, he uh, really uh, worked at that. And of course, you know, eventually it was, in the U.S. it was Jeffrey Hopkins who made Buddhism legitimate. When he got his Position at the University of Virginia, and he was out public as being a Buddhist. Then in the US, it became okay to be a Buddhist and a professor. In Europe, not yet. In fact, even now, I don't know. Uh, at least my experience in Bonds, it was years ago, you had to be quiet about this kind of thing.
0: And um, Buddhist society in London. Now, from what I understand, that pretty Theravada oriented at that time. Christmas Humphreys. Yeah. Maybe that's not the case. You're nodding. Um, so, but Prajna Paramita Sutras, uh, Professor Conte's speciality. So what did his personal Buddhism look like, do you think? I mean, he, wasn't a mon- he didn't become a, a Theravada
1: monk. No no, 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 of course not. I mean, he was familiar with the Theravada tra- tradition because there were all the translations done by Rhys Davids and so on and the Polytech Society, and of course, and I said, when he uh, came to do meditation practice there in, in Wales, he resi- relied upon the... Uh, uh, v- v- Vasudhi Magga and was practicing uh, the various meditations that are uh, d- described in there and uh, uh, so on. So he was uh, working what was available to him at the time, because the, the Tibetans really appeared later on the scene. I mean, of course, their first contact was in St Petersburg with the Russians you know because uh there were various Tibetan Buddhist areas like Buryatia and Kalmuks and and so on who were in the Russian empire and the tsar also had the Padmayav uh, Lama doctor, a Tibetan doctor, and this kind of thing, and gave uh, p- permission for them to erect a Kala Chakra temple in uh, St. Petersburg, as it was during the communist time it was Leningrad. But anyway, uh, uh, Stalin didn't like Buddhists because originally he'd been trained as a Georgian Christian priest. And so... Uh, He had that temple converted into a stable for horses for the cavalry from a time when he was uh, ruling the country in the 30s and so on. But uh, uh, Dorjeff, who was uh, a Kalmuk Mongolian, and also his assistant Geshe Wangjao, who I've met, uh, migrated to New Jersey, where there was a Kalmuk, or is a Kalmuk, community there in Pennsylvania. And he gradually, uh, first he was a a Lama in service to the other Kalmuks, but then when he recruited a number of Western disciples, including Robert Thurman and Chris George and uh, Jeffrey Hopkins, he eventually established his own center in Washington, New Jersey. I've been there a couple times for the uh, Maitreya Festival and so on. And Thurman told me, oh well, the book that uh, Geshe Wong had his first study was none other than the Kunzang Lama Shalo, which I read with David. De so uh, I can uh, really dig that Geshe Wong considered him a really good good guy and uh, important influence on uh, American uh, Buddhism. And so gradually, then the Tibetan scene uh, expanded. Now, France became the main center because the Karmakajus got in there, and then, followed by the uh, Nyingmapas at Pledge, Kalo Rinpoche set up his own center and a retreat center with a three year retreat. And then, down in Dardania, Uh, with the patronage of Gerard Godet and Bernard Benson. Uh, Benson bought a castle down there. He had made a fortune in California out of the early computer days, I think so. And I met all these people in Darjeeling. They used to come and see uh, conjuring. I even stayed at Gerard Godet's uh, three-story flat overlooking the Eiffel Tower one time with my Brazilian friend Clovis. Anyway. uh, uh, they got land there. They gave some land to the uh, Karmakajus, uh, where they still have a, a center and a resident llama, blah blah, and they also gave land to the to, for Kanju to set up a three-year retreat. So they did the first Nyingmapa three-year retreat there and uh, then invited Dujim Rinpoche and Dingo Chense Rinpoche to come and give some teaching. And that, of course, and then SoGal Rinpoche developed this. He was originally just the translator for Dujim Rinpoche, but then uh, when Dujim Rinpoche stopped coming to London, he co-opted the center there and transformed it into Rigpa. Uh, but he became the biggest uh, group Tibetan Buddhist group then in France. And so I met lots and lots lot of people who had been in Rigba for some years, and some of them drifted into our uh, Bonpo scene when we started that up there because uh, Lopin Tenzing Namdak started giving uh, regular retreats in France, having met a, a young, uh, well, he was half French and half Thai. And he first invited the uh, Lopin, but then he caught uh, AIDS from uh, and passed passed away. But his friend Sebastian continued it. And I uh, had met these guys earlier, and uh, so then I started coming to all these French retreats with the Lopin and then uh, Guinness, uh, who. Uh, Lord Guinness is one of the heirs of the Guinness fortune, you know, Irish beer. Uh, he had gone to school in France and all this, and he has an estate in uh, Normandy where he raises horses to race at Ascot and those places. And But when he was in school, he was a friend with uh, this uh, uh, other guy. And so, he became a little interested in Buddhism, and he, he's interested in the interface between traditional spirituality and uh, uh, modern science. And, uh, okay, years ago, Professor Benson from Harvard U- University, and I met him when we took Tartan Kuku over to meet him at some time. But anyway, he had gotten some money for a research project to investigate whether Tibetan lamas really do tumult and can control their metabolism and the heat and so on. So he went to Dharma with all the latest equipment, and they tested these llamas. And yes, he proved, yes, they can do this. So Bumbo is now scientific. <laughs> so then he hadn't uh, uh, heard of these uh, bumpos, but OK, let, let's see if they can do it. So uh, he, uh, he arranged uh, to uh, some. Lamas from uh, Trita Norbutse Monastery in Nepal the come. They came to his place and testing them, see whether they're doing the Tumor Benson came in this. But at the same time, we were having a retreat with uh, Lopontenzig Nundak in the south of France, uh, not not in um, Montpellier, but in that area. It was in the hills above that, but you had to go through Montpellier. To get there, uh, circuitously and so. On. But anyway, uh, well, the Lopan was busy teaching. But he sent his uh, number two man, uh, Kempo Tempa Jungdrung, up to uh, visit, and he talked with uh, uh, Benson, uh, not that, but, um, uh, Guinness, and told him about the Lopun. And so then he invited them. So after the retreat, the uh Lopin went up there and so then uh, Guinness uh, volunteered to uh, help uh, establish a retreat center for him in France and also uh, Charles Ramble who, Was at Oxford for a time, but now at uh, I think the Sorbonne or something. But he's an anthropologist, but has specialized in uh, Tibetan-speaking groups in the Himalayas and so on. wrote excellent articles on all this. But he was a buddy at school with uh, Guinness, and so he's what brought the bumpos together uh, with him. And so then uh, Guinness uh, uh, volunteered to. Uh, build a re- retreat center on his land in Normandy. Well, unfortunately, some of the French in the group got on the internet and put this whole proposal there. And then Guinness's neighbors, all of whom are not French, but rich English, saw this, and they freaked out. No, And this was at the height of Sogel's first scandal in the this last one was a second scam, earlier scam, where it all got in the English newspapers, and Mary Flanagan had written articles about this. Anyway, and they, what? have been put in a lot. So, no, we're not going to let this happen. That's going to bring down the value of our property. And so poor Guinness could not get a building permit. So, finally, he told our Kempo look, here's half a million euro go out and find a castle somewhere and buy it, and you got it. So then Sebastian was hunting around, and he found this place in the Loire uh, river, uh, River Valley area. It's a 16th century uh, castle, but the aristocratic family uh, lost their heads in the French Revolution. So it was taken over by the Catholic Church. It was a monastery for a time. And then it became a school for problem children and so on. And then there was a scandal about that. And so then it was vacant for several years. So they found this place, and they took the Lopin there. I mean, the French all wanted to have a place down south. There's this line south of uh, Leon where the sun comes out, you know, in France. And they all wanted to be down by the Med and uh, the Sogal's place down there, Lairup, Ling, and all this open had no interest in this. So they took him to see this and it was already set up as a school, was ready to go. You didn't have to renovate and all. He said, okay, this place is fine. <laughs> so then uh, they bought it and uh, uh, our friends in the legal profession in, in France uh, then uh, arranged this and uh, it took an act of parliament, but they made this Bumpo community a religious organization in France. But they did this. And uh, then they have a, an under-organization that actually runs the retreats there and so on. And I used to go there every year until COVID comes I came and shut everything down. I haven't been there since then, but uh, the lamas are, are still running there and they're having some uh, events uh, regularly and so on. And I get their uh, news releases, website, uh, all, all this kind of thing. Well, anyway, this is how Kanjupa, Nirmapa, and Bumpa all got to France. Theravada went to England. And later, when Buddhism came there, uh, there was first uh, Karmakaju. There was uh, a number of, of lamas, including Trungpa. Because Trungpa rimchen Akong rimchen they met Fr. Frida Bedi, Bedi in India, who later became a Buddhist nun, Sister Palma. But uh, she got them into the UK. and. Uh, Rinpoche is a very bright bright fellow he saw the lay of white Western culture and so on and that the way to get in Buddhism into them is through the arts and through psychology and science psychotherapy so he did that but basically he was into the arts I mean that, that's where his uh, heart was and uh, then when enoughma uh, Bodhi uh, who used to be Leslie Dawson. He was Canadian, but he changed his name when he became a Theravada monk in, uh, I believe, Burma. And uh, he was teaching in England there, but he had bought this place in Scotland. And then he decided to sell that and move to Canada where he had two millionaire patrons. And so he sold the place to uh, Trungpa and Akong, which is now known as Samueling and, and that continued as the boss there, he and Trungpa had fallen out about some issues and so Trungpa went to Canada and then the US, but Trungpa had his some American followers in Vermont at what was called then Pale of the Tiger. And he came there and he was phenomenally successful in the US. He became the largest Tibetan Buddhist group in, in the US and so on. And then that went through its uh, evolution. There were scandals, uh, uh, some scandals, no mass scandal. And then uh, uh, when his uh, successor, uh, Tom Rich, who also comes from New Jersey, otherwise known as the Vajra region. Or so Tensing had AIDS and freely distributed within the group. Uh, that was another big uh, scandal. But that, that poor guy died. And then uh, uh, Trungpa's biological son, because he had gotten, in, England, in India, he'd gotten a nun pregnant. Uh, yeah, he came, you know, the Sakon. Uh, and then he took over. But I don't follow all the scandals, so now there's other scandals about, about that and so on. It's just too bad that uh, some of this uh, has to happen. And of course, now we have to uh, deal with this Dalai Lama scandal where it's quite obvious the- Chinese got the original film and doctored it to make it look like a, a homosexual uh, assault on some Indian boy where it wasn't at all, because the the Bengalis always had this greeting of uh, in the old days of sticking out their tongue. They don't do it in India, but they used to do it. I mean, I've seen films where you you greet them and the tongues come out and so on. You know, nothing sexual about it, but of course, in our present day paranoia in the West about uh, LGBTQ, etc. Uh, this is very unfortunate that uh, something like uh, uh, this ha- had to happen and get in the news and, and this and so on. Because the Dalai Lama has really been a great and very important leader in these difficult days for the Tibetans, but also for Buddhism worldwide. Years ago, I remember a... Uh, survey uh, done in Germany among German Catholics and this was when John Paul II was the Pope the Dalai Lama was more popular among German Catholics than the Polish Pope <laughs> So
0: fascinating I must position you for a sequel I think and okay. yeah I'd like then to focus on your in more detail on your relationships with your various Lamas True. and also on your work in Dzogchen, in Burn, and uh, the various books you've published uh, yeah. also to do with Tantra and Wiccan, and so on. It would be very interesting indeed if we could do that in the sequel.
1: Oh, yes, because I became eventually a third degree Wiccan high priest. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, OK, so that would be wonderful if we could do that. This has been so fascinating. Professor John Reynolds, thank you very much. OK, namaste. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.